0: Welcome to Team Up Moves. I'm Fiona. And I'm Stephanie. And this is the podcast where we play superhero-themed role-playing games and then talk about them.
1: It's another one of those talking episodes. This is The Back Matter for Spectaculars by Rodney Thompson and published by Scratchpad Publishing. Steph, we've got some guests back
0: here with us. We do. I would like to welcome back the show Seanan McGuire, the amazing prolific novelist, one of whose... Several recent, startlingly heartrending and moving, and just wonderful novellas. Technically, is lost in the moment and found. Hello, and
1: I'd also like to welcome back. They played Emmett, the robot golem, Shana Hausman. Shana, welcome to Team What Moves. Hello,
2: happy to be back.
1: Glad
0: to have you back on Earth and in space.
2: Yeah, not a, not a robot anymore, sadly, golem robot. Oh.
1: We've got a lot to say about spectaculars it's a very interesting game but uh, you know Sean this is a wonderful opportunity to to be able to to talk with you just about about RPGs and, and superhero stuff in general so i was hoping you could you know talk about what, what was your first RPG? Like, how have you gotten into this hobby?
3: I, I mean, kind of like everyone my age. I was a kid in the 80s. My first RPG was Dungeons & Dragons. It had a cartoon. It was so fun. Um, and I started playing when I was in middle school, mostly with a boy from my class named Mike Norskog, who lived within walking distance of my house. And my mother used to tell me not to let his dragon play in my dungeon because I was a little girl trucking off to play games with a little boy, and she did not really fully process the fact that both of us were gay uh, because we had not fully processed that fact yet. But but there were no Dungeons and Dragons adventures in that sense. So we played D and D for years, and then I entered high school in the nineties, which means that I, like everyone else my age, again was ripe for acquisition by White Wolf. Oh yeah. So through high school, I mostly played White Wolf games, uh, various independent independent rpgs magic the gathering and a startling amount of champions i was fortunate in that one of my high school boyfriends because again still processing the fact that i was gay uh one of my high school boyfriends took me to join the gaming group that he was in with his parents which happened to be run by steve perrin uh who was one of the original wild cards authors and the creator of RuneQuest, and was possibly the single best champions gm i will ever have in my life uh, so we played an ungodly amount of champions. I can roll for killing damage while I am actually asleep. And that is a skill I <laughs> learned at Steve's Table. It,
0: it may be a skill that we learned when you played it on the podcast. Tell us about your favorite character from that era that you were playing.
3: My favorite character from that era that I was playing was was probably... Uh, Noriko, who was from a Champions game called Zero Hero, where we had all been abducted by aliens who kind of wildcards-esque gave us our powers based on what we were thinking about. And Noriko was very much an early 90s weeb. So they turned her into a transforming anime girl. She did electricity attacks which was great because our powers came from nanobots, which means everyone in our group had an electricity weakness. Ooh, there you go. Nice. And when she transformed, her intelligence went way down, so she wasn't necessarily good about not zapping her party members. Uh, And the aforementioned boyfriend played her little sister who had magic skateboard powers, and we would just fight like cats in a sack for the entire game. I'm pretty sure we kept dating for at least a year. Longer than we should have because we were having so much fun being furiously bitter sisters. We could get a lot of our relationship aggressions out during game without even realizing that's what we were doing.
0: That is the best case for champions as a system that anyone has ever made.
3: I mean, on Earth. champions as a system—it's uh, a great opportunity to take naps during combat. <laughs> you know, you get to do a lot of math. I actually really like doing a lot of math. If you build things correctly, you get to roll so many dice. Oh,
1: yeah! Oh
3: my God. So many dice. I have a small, small dice addiction, which came about because of Steve Perrin uh, in large degree. He's the one that taught me you couldn't have enough dice. And he also taught me that you would find an opportunity to roll all of those dice if you were given sufficient time. At one point during that era, I was in a uh, an ongoing Wild Cards game, which was delightful, had a great time. We lasted for four years before our GM graduated from college and, you know, fucked off back to, uh, back to the part of the country that he was originally from. And do, do you know the Wild Cards setting at all?
0: I actually don't. I don't either.
3: Wild Cards has never had a good tie-in RPG, but you can kind of fake it with... You can fake it with uh, GURPS or with Champions. And we... Uh, We faked it at the time with champions, which was a lot of fun. And in wild cards, people catch a disease. So, you know, very, uh, very timely for us here in this in this land. Mm -hmm. We catch a disease and it either gives you superpowers or it kills you. If you draw the black, the black queen, you die. If you draw, draw an ace, you get superpowers. If you draw a deuce, you get useless superpowers. If you draw a joker, you mutate into something out of mutants in the now. And uh, I was playing a deuce, so-called, named Redraw, whose entire power was microtelekinesis. She could focus really, really hard and basically pull your card and swap it with someone else's card for a short period of time. Now, control-wise, she could only really do two cards. We got into a situation where we couldn't all evacuate before we were hit by gangs coming at us from two different sides at once. Our teleporter could only take as many people as he had seatbelts because our teleporter was a Chevy sixty-five <laughs> named Off Ramp. Basically,
1: a, a PC playing a Chevy sixty-five. He was
3: literally a car. That's great. Wildcards virus had turned him into a car with teleportation. If your seatbelt was fastened, he could uh, could zoom and teleport you out well he didn't have enough seatbelts, and we didn't really have anyone that could do that kind of damage so redraw said she would stay behind and everybody did not like this um but uh, she threatened the party they left i turned to the gm and said okay how much can i burn because champions has a mechanic where you can start permanently burning parts of your character sheet for more dice for an attack mm-hmm. and i said "Can I? Br- how much willpower can i burn and he said how much do you want to and i said all of it okay how much constitution can i burn Okay, are you just going to clear and sail your character sheet? Yes. Oh, wow. You will be going back into care gen. I am aware. So I clear and sailed my character sheet, and I burned all of the things that I could burn on my sheet got asked, do you know that rolling that many dice will have unpredictable, predictable consequences? You're finally going to actually go all the way into your power set. And I said, yes. And he says, you do fully understand. I want you to sign a piece of paper saying you understand because <laughs> that's like a four hour process. And he said, yes. And then he, he sat there with his calculator for a minute and then said, roll 786 D6.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness.
3: Did you have enough dice to roll that many at once? Yes, we did. It took us an hour to count out the D6. We put them into a plastic trash can. I rolled them all across the table at once. We did not bother to total the damage. He um, just kind of looked at the dice and said, yeah, that works. And that became essentially the small nuclear detonation that set up campaign two. I permanently shuffled the cards of every single person in a six block radius of downtown New York.
0: That is incredible.
3: Wow. It was a catastrophe second only to the original Wild Cards
0: outbreak. I was very proud of myself. I'm just envisioning a trash can full of dice. A game mechanic that says, fill a garbage can with D6 and then empty the garbage can onto the floor.
3: We we emptied it onto the table, to be fair. Yeah,
0: you, you can't let it roll on the floor. But
3: yeah, 786 D6. I feel like some of them probably landed on the floor at that point. Oh, probably. At least it wasn't D4s. Yes.
2: Oh,
0: yeah. Would it be anticlimactic for us to ask you about... Where you went as an RPG player and perhaps even GM after that, or is, is there simply nowhere else to go?
3: No, I mean, that's, that's one of my favorite dice rolls ever because it was funny. But uh, I, from there, for a long time, I went into Mushes, which were the multi-user online shared hallucination text-based systems. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And those were mostly World of Darkness. And I played those for a long, long time. I think most urban fantasy authors of my generation played those. You know, I, they, That's why you can find common elements in our work, even if we've never read each other's work or we're never friends or anything like that, you know, because we were in the same settings for a long time. And then after I stopped mushing, I went back to Dungeons and Dragons. And even with the current OGL explosions and all of that, I'm still playing Dungeons and Dragons because I no longer have the mental elasticity of a 17-year-old. I'm not really in the market to learn a complicated new system, but I played Dusk City Outlaws, which is the first game that Scratchpad Publications did. And so when they said they were going to do Spectaculars, I was very excited and got to chatting with Rodney, who wrote the game. And he wound up coming over to my place and running a play test for for me and a bunch of of us uh, before the pandemic started. And it was a really good time.
0: That was a really neat transition. That was superb. And... I I sort of want to hear about one more of the characters that you have played outside our show, Mm -hmm. but I also know we need to move on. Fiona, do we have time for one more of Shauna's characters? Yeah, I, I think I think we do.
3: So we did a call of Cthulhu campaign for a while and I played a character who by it, uh, by herself, Casey was not that impressive. She's a fairly generic call of Call of Cthulhu reporter. Mm-hmm. but for some reason, the gods of RNG had blessed my dice like unto they have never been blessed before. That campaign lasted for about three and a half years before we shut down. Mm-hmm. And I never failed a sanity check. Never. Mm-hmm. So I'm playing the same Call of Cthulhu character for three and a half years. Her sanity has never dropped below a 95. She is doing great. She is just trucking through this mythos-filled world like unto Maureen Brinbaum, barbarian swords person. She does not care last session we're done we know we're done because again this was dave the gm who left and so we know this is the last session and cthulhu rises because that is what happens in the last session of every cthulhu campaign and i roll my sanity check and i fail (laughs) and i have never seen a gm so happy in my life dave is full on he gets up from the table and he starts to dance and he is doing the rhythmless white guy touchdown shuffle around the table. It's like watching a circus bear. It is hilarious, but it's also just sort of like, oh God, oh God. When you fail a sanity check, at least in that edition of Call of Cthulhu, when you say, fail a sanity check in the face of Cthulhu, you roll 1d100. Okay. So you can wipe out a brand new character in one roll if you're unlucky. So I have failed my sanity check, And I roll my 1D100 as Dave is dancing Mm -hmm. and I get a one. So my one failed sanity check of the entire campaign, Casey literally stops, makes a herking noise, and then sticks her microphone at Cthulhu and asks him what he's intending to do. (laughs) Sanity 94 coming out of that campaign. I thought Dave was going to kill me.
0: On this part of that game, you want to roll low.
3: In Call of Cthulhu, if you fail a sanity check, the die you roll tells you how many sanity points you lose.
0: And she lost one sanity point. That's lovely. One. That's great. In the
3: face of Cthulhu, who can call cost you up to
0: 100.
3: Yeah. One. I thought Dave was going to kill me. <laughs>
2: so you're saying that she then stuck her microphone in Cthulhu's face. I felt like could have gone either way for sanity. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure we're going to have a lot to say about D100 probabilities uh, as we get into this game. But we really are. Wait,
0: wait. I have one more question. Yeah, sure, sure. What did Cthulhu say? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then he stomped on some stuff that tracks
1: like the do. <laughs> okay well i think it's gonna be impossible to top that so let's move on and get into spectaculars and we're going to start with the origin story And this is where we talk about prep and uh, character creation and and sort of what the the GM or facilitator had to do. And the first thing in in Spectaculars is is actually a bit of setting creation. And this is something that the table can do in in a shared way. We saw that setting book in the AP in our case, we kind of went with New Arcadia. We have that and also immediately blasted off into space. So I think the first thing to get into then is the some of the archetypes. And Shana, I wanted to bring you in on this. What was the archetype that you chose and, and what, is the, what is the mechanical meaning behind having an archetype in Spectaculars?
2: Yeah, so I went with the construct, which actually is not part of the setting we were using. When we were looking at the settings, I think you gave us a choice between two of them. And I was like, oh, space is cool. Oh, but I could be a construct in this one. And then you said I could be a construct in space as well. So (laughs) I went with that. As for what it means, I'm pulling out my character sheet so I can remember exactly what it means. It has a bunch of like sort of flavor things like what my artificial nature is. And then you get no frail creature of flesh and bone, which means I'm immune to diseases, poisons, and any other maladies that affect biology. I don't have to breathe and can withstand intense atmospheric pressures or complete vacuum without an environmental suit. So like, you know, pretty useful for space.
1: Solid, yeah, absolutely.
2: Didn't actually come up too much, but if, if, if things had gone badly, <laughs> I would have been pretty happy. I mean, I wouldn't have been happy that things went badly.
1: <laughs> right. But you wouldn't have been suffering if, you know, that poison yeah. gas leak had gotten
2: worse. Except emotionally.
1: There you go. This, Emmett does have emotions. That's true. Lots of yeah. Sense. And and I think that, that that flexibility is is kind of a, a neat thing about spectaculars where it does really encourage you to to cross over things, to mix and match. And so taking an archetype that is, you know, technically in one of the four series and, and using it in another is is totally fair game and encouraging by the rule book to the point
0: where i know we always play games with rules as written on this podcast but if you play exactly as written with the space scenarios you actually have to start in another scenario and play a storyline that gets you into space so it's it's designed to get any character you like into space yeah
1: Now, once you kind of have an archetype, then we start dealing cards. Sean, can you talk about the power and roll cards and how they work and, and what you chose for Lily?
3: So you get up to three powers that fit into basically slots on your character sheet. When you're playing Spectaculars physically, it is really designed so that everything will kind of slot together and have its place, which is nice. And as you put powers on your sheet, they cover up certain other things. Um, your powers are dealt to you randomly, obviously. You get your choice of five powers apart from the basic powers, and then you get your choice of three identities. And each of those will give you, obviously, a power, but also skills and such that you can roll at. The power options I was given were phasing. Phasing fire manipulation, super speed, power mimicry, and augmentation. And mimicry and augmentation seems to fit together really well apart from, you know, anything else on there fitting together. I can steal your shit, and then I can be better at it than you are. (laughs) Yes. So I just went with Augmentation and Mimicry, and uh, then my identity choices were Firefighter, which would have been great with fire manipulation, (laughs) Racer, which, Super Speed, you know, obviously the cards were being very kind in terms of we're going to give you things that make identities easy, or Diplomat. And a diplomat who, in a world, in a universe where superpowers are common, can fit in with the dominant superpowers on any, you know, away mission or whatever, is going to go over pretty well. Then, of course, I made the most unpleasant person in space. But she's trying. (laughs) She's trying. Mostly I use diplomacy to berate people. It's great. I
1: feel like it's a good use for it. Mm -hmm. Now, Steph, this is coming for us fairly close off of... Sentinel Comics RPG, which has a sort of legendary, at this point, uh, modern legend, randomized character generation. And so listen to that, Ron, listeners, uh, if you're into that. This is pared down, but still very random. And I think that what I want to get into a little bit is, are you still able to create a character that you're happy with in the system? Does it give you enough choices? Is there enough random variety that it works?
0: How is it for you? I love it. I I really love it. The Sentinel Comics system has five million billion options, and if you choose to use their randomized system, you then have to tweak it so that you haven't given yourself super strength five times in five different ways. It's really complicated. It's cool, but it's complicated. This is a system that reminds me much more of writing exercises. Mm-hmm. If you take like a short story writing class or something where the the teacher or like the person next to you, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm teaching a class like this in a few hours. So my mind is here. We'll give you a card with three prompts and say, choose one, and then you're off. And at least for me, this was great because I got some randomization that took me in places that I wouldn't have gone. And I wasn't on my own with what's already in my brain pan, but I could move very fast from here are your random options to pick some to what do you do with this? And it allowed me to move into storytelling fast and it let me tell a story about my character that I would never have come up with absent the what the hell card draw aspect. So there could be more options in some ways, especially for the role choice, Mm -hmm. but- I am very much into the way this game partly randomizes character powers. I'm I'm very much for it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Sean, you are someone who has created hundreds, thousands of characters uh, in, in books and and uh, at tables. How is random character generation like this for you?
3: I generally hate randomized character generation. I, my friend Crystal loves Mutants in the Now desperately. I won't play it because of some of the things it won't let me control. And some of that is my trauma. I acknowledge that fact. I did a lot of gaming as a cis female teenager who hit puberty early at tables with asshole high school boys. Oh, lordy. And uh, there are elements of my character I just cannot have outside my control or I can't be comfortable playing them even though I know I'm not at those high school tables anymore. That said, Spectaculars, because it does have the limited randomization, it just makes you be more innovative. You have to figure out ways that you're going to fit those things together. My last Spectaculars character turned out to be a beam. Basically, I made uh, Rita Farr from Doom Patrol accidentally, but with a Cthulhu twist. Mm-hmm. She was a starlet who had been on a cheap, Lovecraft adaptation that actually brought a copy of the Necronomicon as a prop. So she was partially possessed by yogg Sothoth, <laughs> And all of her powers required her to turn into this sort of horrifying hybrid creature, which does not do well when your whole thing is being pretty. But But that was super fun. And for all that Lily herself is unpleasant, I like yelling. Uh, so that is fun, and her power combo turned out to be really fun. And being able to go, can I use your telepathy and my skill at um, at goading people at the same time was lovely, even if it gave me a lower chance of success.
1: Ah, uh-huh. wonderful! Now, Shana, you went into this, I think, with with maybe a little bit more sense of of what you were trying to do. I know that the construct and golems is is something that, that that kind of spoke to you. Did the powers work for that or or did they come into conflict with kind of your character, your character idea?
2: Well, yes and no. I mean, one thing I do like, first of all, is that like when I first got them, I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do with these? Because I got, what did I get? I got binding, magnetism, laser generation, transformation, and air manipulation, which you know. I can think of robots that do all those things, mm-hmm. but golems are a little more specific. Mm-hmm. I, and I wanted to play a golem because I'm a big fan. I actually have the word Emmet Truth tattooed on me, which there's a reason it was Emmet's name. It's how you activate a golem by writing the word Emmet on their forehead and then erasing the olive. In to, yes, in Hebrew. Yes. Thank you for that. That's important. But yeah, so I knew I wanted to play a golem. And I was looking at these powers and like, I I like that you can go with the basic ones because I could have just said, well, I want to play a golem. I'm going to go with strength and, and endurance and be done with it. But like, I didn't really, I felt like that was kind of going a little against the spirit of the game. Mm-hmm. And also I wanted to use some of these cool powers, especially magnetism, which gave me Magneto feels. And since I was playing a Jewish superhero, I was like, thematically, this feels good. So I ended up adjusting my story a little bit. And instead of going with a, a golem, going with a sort of golem robot hybrid who had magnetic powers and even more identity issues. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I also chose transformation and I feel like that, I mean, we'll talk about the, you know, retcons later. I feel like I didn't totally understand how powers worked at that point mm-hmm. um, because I ended up barely using it, yeah. but um, I liked that I could choose from the basics and give my character what I'm actually looking for but I also liked the pushing me out of my comfort zone and making me make the character something different than I expected.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's nice that they have those basics to, to fall back on, you know, you see your super strength, your flight. It's the, just those staples, right, of of superhero fiction. Anything else, anything else that anyone wants to bring up about uh, character creation in this system and, and kind of how it worked
0: for you in our game? I think we should just mention that the roles and the identities are not power-based, that you get to select, it's not random, what kind of thing your character does on the team. When I picked Tech Wizard for Across, that, that didn't come out of a card deck. That was me looking at the available roles for a space team. I, I'm going I'm to uh, correct you slightly. Uh, archetype. Sorry, archetype. I got to pick the archetype. And so y- you pick an archetype and then you find out what your powers are and what your kind of job is, your identity is, because those do come out of a deck. And thinking right off the bat and in a, a really simplified way about how what your character wants to be, what your character has sort of done for a living or what they're known for, and what their powers are, that's really powerful. I, I really like this system a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I do always like to mention what. GM prep is requested by the game. And so the, the series, you know, we've, we've sort of mentioned this, uh, is a pad of paper, you know, it's scratch pad publishing, and you sort of tear off sheets and there's character archetypes and the team and, and that kind of thing. And then getting into the issue itself, I was given a minions sheet marked The Swarm and asked to define what a swarm sort of minion kind of enemy could be. And this is, you know, the examples they have is like the brood and the phalanx is sort of obviously what they're going for. And you can choose like, oh, do I want insects? I'm like, well, no, like this has kind of been done. And I've been listening to like my 30th listen of Terry Pratchett's Moving Pictures. And so like Creatures Between Dimensions maybe coming in was sort of on my mind. And then I also got a choice of villain. I could either go with the Swarm Queen for whatever that would mean who is you know infesting this ship and, and using it to, to spread their uh, you know, progeny. Or what I went with instead was the alien zealot. And then again, I had some checkboxes and that kind of thing to sort of define who this would be. And I was able to call back slightly, this uh, is a character who has appeared on Team Up Moves before. I don't know if I'm quite... It's a really good villain. I'm not quite willing to, to completely uh, say who that is. Then I also, I get to choose a power. And I, I deal myself three cards, and one of them I think was like sound manipulation, and like maybe, uh, but another one was telepathy. And that was able to kind of fit in with, okay, what I'm thinking about this character and, and what they can do, how they might be controlling the swarm of these interdimensional sort of aspects. And, you know, I just kind of put that in. I, I don't get any of the telepathy extra abilities, just sort of narratively, they've got a 75% using telepathy, just baseline. I think also in there, I was thinking as well, like, okay, I know that Lily at this point has power copying and that you can copy powers off of the villain. So I also, you know, I wanted one that could also maybe be a little bit of a bit fun for her too. And then it's basically like you get started. I mean, the, the, the issue page is is great in terms of laying out an outline of events that happen without being overly prescriptive and I, and I think I'll, we can leave some of this maybe to the, the letters page or afterwards but for a GM this was very pleasant I had a lot of choices but it wasn't I wasn't sort of drowning in lack of constraints
2: so when you said that you took out the swarm page did you have a choice of those or is that like the one you randomly pulled or the top of the pad
1: so for this issue there are the swarm enemies. Mm. And then I kind of get to define what they are. And, and also I can choose like their attack. There was, we went with the low chance of hitting, but very high damage to sort of reflect their uh, uh, dimensional attachment to, you know, your molecules. Well, let's move on now to the letters page. And we always start this with the question, what is this game trying to do? And, and Steph, I'd like you to, uh, to answer that, please, in, to the best of your ability
0: to the best of my ability yeah this game is trying to enable a wide variety of fairly conventional-ish superhero stories this game wants to give you many different settings and character potentials and ways to have chatty issues and quiet moments but it is focused on what uh, big two company editors call superhero business. It does want to bring you, I think, to a point where there's combat and conduct combat and have you use your powers in combat. And it, it stands out from the other sort of general purpose games that we've played from Sentinel Comics and from Champions in particular, in that it's designed to move fast and it's designed to get you away from what I guess would be a standard kind of DC book fight where like the Flash and Green Lantern are fighting Brainiac and Metropolis. It's, it's designed to get you into other kinds of settings, but it is a superhero fight focused game where you're the good guys and you have to fight bad guys.
1: Shannon, do you agree with this summation of Spectaculars? Is there anything that you would add to that? I feel that by using New Arcadia, we actually
3: skipped a large purpo- a large portion of what Spectaculars is trying to do, mm-hmm. which is that it's trying to get the players, it's trying to get the table as a whole to buy in on this communal setting and to feel ownership of the setting in a way that's going to discourage murder- murder-hoboing your way through what your GM has built. You're not going to go knocking down banks when you have a feeling of ownership toward those banks, even if they're fictional banks. I understand why we did it that way. We needed to kind of shortcut certain parts of the process and not have to establish all that during a one-time podcast, basically playtest. But if you do the full Spectaculars experience, you are building every aspect of your setting together. So you are reaching a full table consensus of we are playing in the 1980s. We are playing in a low tech environment. No one knows what a superhero is. So we have to be super careful because anytime they find one, they kill it. You know, We, we have come to those consensus agreements together. And that does create, in every Spectaculars game I've been in, it has created at the table a feeling of understanding of your environment, Mm. of immersiveness in your environment, and of almost protectiveness toward your environment. I definitely want the full Spectaculars experience now.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no game on this podcast that I wouldn't play again under the right circumstances. This is one of the games that I want to play again. For for that reason.
1: Yeah. I think there's a thing I, I want to add, and, and I think building on that, Sean as well, is another thing that Spectaculars is trying to do is to be incredibly approachable for a new table, for new players, for a new GM. The way that it gives you so much that is can be intimidating you know, if you're just starting out and like, oh, no, I need to create an adventure for these characters. What am I going to do? The fact that Spectacular is by leaning, you know, Stephanie said on some of those conventions, but then giving you the choices. It's this is like I would say like if you're a new GM and new players, this is one of the best games I feel like that I've seen for being able to teach you some things about about running a table. And and I think that, just to call back, Sean, indirectly to your point, I love that it's encouraging good habits right off the bat of talking to the players, getting them involved in the setting creation, making this world a, a wee thing instead of just a, like, a, like a GM with their hardback adventure telling you the way, way the world is. I think there's, that's, that's something that's, that's great that, that I think that the, is, um, you know, they're really going for with Spectaculars. So I think then the question is, like, is this, is this successful at, at what it's trying to do? Do we get those conventional stories? Do we get that, that shared ownership? Do we get a gentle on-ramp? Shana, what's your thought?
2: Yeah, I mean, I really loved this system. Like, I've played a lot of games. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on games. There's the two ends of things. There's, you know, very, very crunchy. And then, and like all the numbers and, you know, roll to walk. In a straight line and not fall over. And then there's we're gonna be much more narrative, we're gonna like roles are gonna happen because it's a tabletop game, but mostly we're just kind of improving together. Um and I felt like this was a really good balance. I felt like the the roles were there, and I liked I liked the way that they had the advantages and disadvantages. I thought it was a really neat way to sort of give that experience of like, sometimes an extra good thing happens or an extra bad thing happens. And in this case, completely independently of does your attack succeed or whatever you're doing succeed? Honestly, I'd say it felt more like reading a superhero comic than most games I've played because the mechanics were smooth enough that things like, you know, we didn't have to stop and say, okay, how much damage does this do? Do I add my modifier for being around a
0: nuclear reactor
2: yeah exactly like it's i i and you know don't get me wrong i actually do love those crunchy math games Mm -hmm. but there is something really nice about the smoothness about the sort of fact that the it's much more about storytelling oh and like and that fact that you know i said there are no modifiers there is the percentage you have to roll under it doesn't matter whether you are trying to lift like a massive building or a car or like your sibling if you have super strength it's the same role and i mean i think there's the gms would say no you can't do that like within the rules of set unless you know you're being imbued with extra power yeah but it's just about can you do the thing and then you explain how you did the thing and i thought that was cool
0: Mm -hmm. Janet, I i love what you said about how playing this game is more like reading a superhero comic and not in the sense that you're more passive it's not that at all but in the sense that this is this is the first game that we've seen that focuses on contests and combat with antagonists and moves fast enough that you don't have to take out your microscope and your magnifying glass and like your slide rule mm-hmm. all the other games that that I've seen not just on this podcast but you know maybe ever that allow for superheroes, either everything's slower or it's deliberately not focused on, like, can we beat up the Green Goblin?
2: I'm also not sure if this was, like, I don't know if I had to call this the, if this was a example of the rules working or just us being great players, but I really loved that we all had kind of our moment to shine in the big team fight. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like anyone was being the absolute, well, we all felt like the absolute stars, so to speak,
0: in a space game. Yeah.
1: So looking at combat, and again, this is this is a very combat centered game, or at least uh, conflict centered. The rulebook does talk about your other scenes, what they call interlude scenes, which you know we were doing. I wasn't calling them that explicitly in the AP, but the guidance around those is frame a scene, figure out what you're trying to do, and then probably like just roll once to see if it's successful. The bulk of everything is is in these is in these conflicts. And this does have an initiative order, and we randomize the initiative each time. And one of the things that I was thinking about, again, the way we sort of the mechanics and mapping them to stories, based on the action economy, the villains tend to get as many initiative cards as there are players. And so I was feeling like I was more doing stuff like in character in these fights, I feel like the villain is doing more than in some other games. And you know, in in Sentinel Comics, the villains they have one one turn in the order. When I would think about masks, a lot of it is more reactive, right? Sort of waiting for those failures to say, okay, well now the villain jumps in and, and does something. Does this feel like there's there's almost too much attention to the villains? Given that you know, I had between the villains and then two minion squads, I had more initiative cards than the rest of y'all.
3: Honestly, to me, it makes it feel more balanced
1: mm-hmm.
3: because if you make a villain that cannot one shot the whole party, the party's just going to one shot your villain. Everybody, it's like a Pokemon fight. Everybody hits that villain and they just go down. But this way you can make a villain who is more on a level with the party or who for whatever reason is not hitting as hard as they can if you want them to be recurring and not have us turn them to paste in the very first round. Mm -hmm. It makes balance a little bit more realistic, which is a terrible word to say in the context of any superhero game. (laughs) But you don't feel as much like you have to either hit us with Tiamat or we're going to one-shot your young green dragon.
0: Yeah. The problem of balance in combat in RPGs is often in practice i think not about how powerful is your character but about how many turns how many actions right fiona used the phrase action economy yeah how many actions do the heroes get versus how many actions do the villains get and i feel like if if Some alternate version of Fiona in some alternate and less awesome version of the game that we played, who just decided that the villains had too many turns, could just have some minions run away, and that would solve a problem. But allowing the villains to take multiple turns And randomizing the initiative instead of saying, well, now you go last every time, every time.
2: Mm -hmm. I really like the randomization. Mm -hmm.
0: That allows you to have one or two bad guys and some minions fight a party that has three or four or five PCs without having to make them Galactus.
1: I think one of the things that it does require on the... And so one thing is, you know, the, the, the villain does have... I had three actions each round and I was trying to hit you and then also advance my objective. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that kind of makes sense. Like that if, if I only had one turn, I would get to do one or the other. And boy, the advocate was not rolling well on advancing that objective. So that was, so it's like, you (laughs) know, I kind of, I see why it's, it's mechanically necessary and mechanically important. I think one thing that does bring up is I still only get one power, whereas the rest of y'all have up to three. So I was a little bit of struggling of if I keep attacking, so it's like I'm trying to advance my objective, but I can only successfully advance it once. Like that's in the rules. Otherwise I would just focus on that completely, right? If I'm hitting several times, there is a feeling of needing to vary what my one power does or feels like so that it isn't like super samey every time. And I, I think that probably for some powers, it's easier than others. It's sort of an interesting combination, I guess, of like I'm going a lot, but also have less to
0: do are you not able as a gm to construct a villain with two powers i i mean i could i don't mean can you do it as a person i mean does (laughs) the spectaculars let you
1: spectaculars tells you to draw three cards pick one and then that is the villain's power 75% chance power.
2: Mm. Uh, Yeah. Sorry, can I just say one more thing about comment? I'm just thinking of, you know, the whole, the old superhero, like, cliche of, you know, all the villains line up to attack the hero one at a time. Mm -hmm. And so he can just punch them out, or she or they. And D&D games can kind of be the opposite because of the initiative order, like, where we're kind of all lining up to punch the bad guys one at a time. And I like that this feels like you're not doing either of those. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the dice. And this is a, the 100 AC system for advantage and challenge. And I think sort of describing slightly to listeners, the closest thing, this is, seems like a, a simplified version, if anyone's familiar with Genesis or the Fantasy Flight Star Wars, is this idea that you've got, your roles can have two axes, that there is a success, sort of a pass or fail axis, and then a, are other things better or worse axis. And... Fantasy Flight games do that by giving you a a bunch of these different little custom dice. This drops that back in complexity a lot, where your success is purely a D100 against a percentage. And then the is this sort of positive outcomes, negative outcomes beyond that, is done with these advantage and, and challenge dice. And the probabilities of those are... Vantage dice is a is a d eight where half the faces have a boon icon, and the challenge is a d ten where where six of the ten faces have a disadvantage icon. I, I just want to maybe just start just like opening like what's your impression of this system? I know Shannon, you already mentioned feeling positive about it, uh, Steph or, or Sean, in one hundred AC. What's what's your thought?
3: I actually really like it. Mm-hmm. It is very intuitive. And it is more evenly distributed than most other systems. If you're really good at something, you should have a higher chance of success. It shouldn't just be, oh, I roll a d20, and even though I am supposedly the best at this thing in the world, and I have a plus 15, Mm -hmm. I get a two, so I fail utterly. Like, it, it shouldn't work that way That on that narrow a band. You can still fail on D100. You can have a 90% power and roll a 92. It can happen. But it's a lot less common. And I feel like that is a better reflection of what the player expectation of their character is going to be.
0: Yeah. I love the boon and challenge system. And I love that that you can have both. And I love that you can have a boon on a failure or a challenge on a success mm-hmm. that makes the roles more fun and gives the GM more options and therefore the player is more fun without requiring more roles or weird math. Yeah. I don't like the damage system though. Should we talk about the damage system? We'll get to that in just a sec. Yeah. Okay. And
1: I think one of the things that's interesting and again for me I, I do sort of contrast this with with Genesis and I do like the idea of like adding a couple little dice to make things a little bit better, a little bit worse. Shana, you mentioned that this game does not have rules for how close you are to the nuclear reactor. And I think that one of the ways that it works without that is that you can add these dice to be like, okay, this is a, this is sort of a harder situation for you. You know, you're trying to climb the rocks, the rocks are slippery, so we'll throw in some challenge dice. It is interesting though, that they, they don't ever affect that overall success number when you're sprinkling them in, unlike Genesis. And so I think that one of the things that uh, about this for me is that it really is incumbent, I think, on the players sometimes to to ask for them or or want them because there aren't always a lot of mechanical triggers to say, oh, you should add challenge dice or add advantage dice. It has to be sort of at the table. You're like, OK, well, but I'm really good with vapor. So like, can we throw some of these things in and kind of reminding, I think that's something to sort of be aware of playing this game is like, yeah, you should make sure you make use of these.
2: Reminds me a little of Power by the Apocalypse, where if you roll most of successes, unless you roll like a 10 or over, even if you succeed, you're getting like a complication. And I like that this has a mechanism for that, but also a mechanism for Sometimes you get a complication in the positive direction. Mm-hmm. That aspect of you can fail and still succeed or vice versa. Mm-hmm.
3: And I feel like it's a good way to encourage the teamwork maneuvers, which are supposed to be a thing where mm. you work with your, with your party members to make them look awesome. Because taking the spotlight, which is a mechanic that you don't get to see every game, and I was so glad that we got to see it, requires four advantages on a single roll. The only way you're getting four advantage dice under normal circumstances is if one of your party members has already said, hey, you know what? I think you would be better at this than me. Let me support you.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And, and I think, again, when we think about the ways of this game sort of encouraging those good habits looking out for your your fellow players and 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 wanting to help them shine is is i think a great one yeah so damage now the way that damage as a reminder works is that if you succeed on a roll and and remember you succeed by rolling under the the target number so ninety percent ability you succeed rolling under 90 that number is now your damage so everyone's like top line power there you know eighty percent is sort of your your basic power you have the Possibility of just dealing eighty damage, and characters, your your characters all start with hundred resistance. The villain starts with one hundred times the number of of, of players, so three hundred in our case. Yeah, Steph, you brought this up, so I'll, I'll let I'll let you uh, kind of take it here after that description.
0: Okay, this damage system does two things that are good. One is your most powerful power is your most powerful power in terms of the damage that you do. So it really incentivizes you to use your top-line power. Mm -hmm. The other thing it does is it means you're just rolling fewer times, which is great, especially for players who don't want more crunch and who want fast-moving combat. However, it can really throw any potential for clear pacing or enjoyable pacing out the window when you have no idea whether a successful attack is going to do 80 points of damage or two points of damage. It makes it very hard to figure out how long things are going to take, and it means that as long as the GM is doing things, you know, rules as written, you've got a serious chance of an unexpected slog, which is made worse by the way this game incentivizes you to use the same power over and over, or a chance of unexpectedly one-shotting someone. And I was trying to think of, of... whether a table could do anything about that, and I, th- I think the only way for a table to get around that problem is just for a, a GM to be willing to have villains be, you know, joined by their clones if they're getting crushed, or run away if <laughs> people keep doing, you know, hitting and doing three damage. But it's it's a real problem in terms of fight pacing.
1: I have some thoughts, but I want to ask Shana, do you do you agree? Is is this a problem? Um. Well. Somehow I didn't realize that was how damage worked. And I'm trying to think, did I
2: damage anyone? And I'm pretty sure I did. But did the damage for the minions work differently?
1: Yeah. So minions, it's just if you have any hit, it just reduces the minion size. Like they're, the size of the number of them that there are. They don't get shorter. There are fewer of them. Wait, <laughs> do they get shorter? I, I don't know. It depends on the minion.
2: Would you rather fight a million duck-sized minions <laughs> or a minion-sized duck?
0: <laughs> I you need 10 ducks for a minion. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I still am surprised. I did, totally did not notice that was how damage worked. Okay, cool. Anyway, I think that is definitely not how I would do it necessarily. Like when you're doing it against 300 damage, like the fact that you might do 79 damage on your 80% attack, you'd still have to do quite a few of those really, really good rolls to get there. But that is still a 3%. But one thing I do like is that the the goal is not actually to take out the villain. Like you're going for an objective that is different than that. So I think that kind of maybe makes
3: up for it a little bit. That makes sense. You know, I, um, I don't care. Ah, honestly, like, Mostly because I trust my GM and part of that communal like creation process of spectaculars is encouraging you. You have to trust your GM. You're making this beautiful thing and putting it into their hands. And part of trusting my GM is believing that if we're doing too much damage too fast, they will up the amount of damage the villain can take, which is encouraging your GM to cheat. I know that but I also know that every GM since the dawn of time has done it. And the question is, are they doing it because you are winning or because they want to see you die? Right. But uh, a, a good GM will pace the combat despite that. And really, any randomized damage system, any damage system that is not a hit does five points, you have that potential for a rage. You know, I know we keep referencing d because that is something that we all know that we have in common. I have a character who has a ring that lets me re-roll any die that comes up max damage on a fire-based attack. So if I roll a fireball, which is 8d6, and any of those d6 comes up a 6, I keep the 6 and I roll it again. Mm. I've had chains. I've had the same die roll a 6 five times in a row because it just wanted to say, fuck that bad guy in particular. <laughs> so I've had generally... Well, that is a potentially... 5 d6 would be 30 48 point fireball turn into a 72 78 point fireball because of the cascading sixes I've also had that same fireball come out at eight points yeah and when your fireballs an eight like that's a thing the dice can do to you just the same as the dice doing it to us here
0: that's a good point
3: so I I, I feel like I don't care because it is on every randomized system not just spectaculars.
1: Mm-hmm. So I would say on this, I, I think that, Shannon, you, you brought up a good point about the objectives. And, and I think looking through, and, and this is going back to like the ways that Spectacular's, I think, encourages good habits, that a lot of the fights, and I flipped through some of the other ones, there is that, there is a secondary objective. It's not just always about hit everyone until they're at zero or, or have run away. And that's good, right? That's a more interesting situation. It forces choices among the players. So in that sense, you know, the villains damage, you know, what they can take doesn't matter as much. And I think that's a good thing. I think that looking at sort of the consequence, though, of, you know, I was not meaning to two-shot Lily. Um, and that very much almost happened. Mm-hmm. Luckily, Emmett was able to like a- actually end up having that that great character moment, right? Of being like, mm-hmm. "No, I'm defending this." Like, wonderful, perfect. Like that worked out great. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's you know it's a thing to be aware of. And I think that I don't necessarily want to pass judgment, good or bad, but what I do feel like is it definitely incentivizes faster combats, just like o- number of turns. Because if you knock someone out round two. But the overall scene is only going three rounds. That's not that bad, right? If you knock someone out round two, and it's going to be like ten rounds, like that's what I was afraid of. I'm like, oh, oh my goodness! Like, is Shane is 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 Sean going to have nothing to do for the next, um, you know? Thing? But no, like, uh, a you were saved, and, and b it, it was over quickly after that. So I, th- I think that's that's a thing to to keep in mind of. Hey, yeah, play- characters can get knocked out, and then that can be an interesting sort of story moment, and a thing that they have to reflect over. And then, overall, if the scene doesn't go too much longer, you're not knocking the player out because, like, unlike Sentinel Comics, like which does have an out move for characters, like you just don't have that; so you're just sort of taken out of the scene.
2: And I've been in games where, like, I have been knocked out in round two, and
1: it sucks. Yeah, so did time at that point. I want to end with our letters page ender, which is, when did this game make you feel like a superhero? And uh, 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 Shaina, why don't you go first on this? We'll go around. Yeah,
2: um, I think that that final battle, I had two moments that really made me feel like a superhero, saving Lily. And honestly, the support power I got um, from my role as, not the support power, the tank power I got from my role as the tank, Mm. which let me spend a hero point to take that or to get rid of that damage, and up being super useful. Yeah. Just being able to save my teammate felt really good. And also that moment where I got to punch through the doors, I got to do that twice, but it, was, but it felt way more heroic when it was right in front of the big
1: villain. Yeah. Uh, Steph... When did Across feel like a superhero?
0: At the end, when she got to do everything and save everyone, because she rolled really well. <laughs> and I just felt like, wait, am I hogging the spotlight, or did it just naturally pass to me? The move is that- like literally take the spotlight. Like, yeah, like the power <laughs> yeah. is take the
3: spotlight. The dice said take the spotlight.
0: I took the spotlight, and Across had been really waiting for that moment to save everyone and blow up the ship and it was a moment when she got to use simultaneously her superpowers and her archetype. she knows where the tech is she knows how the ships work mm-hmm. i f- really felt like the the whole game set me up for that and i was I just looked at the other players and it was like, I hope you had moments like this in this game because this is perfect. Shannon, when or did Lily feel like a superhero? I don't
3: think Lily has ever felt like a superhero. Lily mostly feels like a political exile. Yeah. I I, on the other hand, um, very much enjoyed both the that's my second grade field trip shrug off. It's nice to have a failed <laughs> role work that perfectly, but also figuring out that I could goad with his telepathy if I just rolled right and then getting to roll to beat down the super villain with his own powers. Don't bring a telepath near someone whose entire job is being a, co- a cosmic carrot. Um, <laughs> and that was just delightful.
1: Excellent.
3: I'm pretty sure Across keeps her around because Lily is a super villain if you leave her in the room alone for 10 minutes. <laughs>
0: Across does not have enough like look ahead and ability to <laughs> remember that people she likes can go bad. Across is just like I take care of this spaceship and we have adventures and Aww. somehow these other people live on it and as long as they're nice to about biting, like it's great. Cool cool cool.
2: Emmett feels that way though. Emmet Emmett is a little bit terrified of Lily.
3: It's like in a good way. Yeah, that's probably for the best. But yeah, just like we're gonna keep you because otherwise you're going to like knock over the galactic bank and destroy currency futures.
2: Are we sure that's not a good thing? I mean uh, you know, we'll see.
1: We're going to move on to Ongoing's retcons and spin-offs. And so we're going to go around the table. Everyone's going to get a chance to contribute on, on each of these three things. The first, the prompt for Ongoing is what part of the spectacular system are you interested or excited about or want to talk about that we didn't maybe get a chance to see or, or see fully in our actual play? And Steph, uh, I'm going to start with you on this.
0: I think Shannon kind of already called it, it's the collaborative setting building. Like that's the biggest part that we didn't do. The other things I would like to see is that you get, I think it's like eight or 10 different kinds of teams that you can build and you get four kinds of settings, which are space nonsense, silver agey science-based superheroes, eldritch sorcery stuff and gritty street-level fighting. Mm-hmm. And I would I would actually like to do this again in space again with the other kind of space team you could have who are a space all-star team that lean into large-scale space opera. I would like to do this again with sorcery, magic, Dr. Strange villain kind of thing with the right team. I am a science girl who want things to make sense, but... I would love to play a fish out of water with a whole bunch of mystical people. Okay, and I would just like to try those other scenarios that the game provides, but you can only play one at a time.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can you can jump among them actually. That that is supported and encouraged
0: uh, per the rules. It, in a campaign, you can jump among them, but yes, you can't be like fighting the octopus demon in the sewers and be on like Zeta Tau Ten Thousands fighting the scrolls at the same time.
2: Unless you have some kind of duplication power.
0: Oh wow. You called
1: it. <laughs> yes. Uh Shannon, an ongoing from you.
3: I mean, same issue. I really really prefer to get that full immersive everyone has the same amount of information as a guest on the podcast. I felt a little bit left out in those opening sequences where you're going, I want you to interact with New Arcadia. Show me how your feel- character feels about New Arcadia and I'm like I know jack all about New Arcadia. Everyone else clearly knows something about New Arcadia. I'm not actually sure there are pigeons for me to hate. I don't like not feeling like I'm on an equal footing with the rest of the people around me. But that's okay. I got over that quickly and we left New Arcadia. But for an ongoing, I'd want to do proper, fully collaborative generation of our setting both in terms of what does the city look like or what does the galactic civilization look like but in terms of what kind of campaign we were playing
1: Mm -hmm. shana
3: yeah um well
2: one thing i noticed is like and i don't know if these were even mechanical at all or really just flavorful when you're filling out the character sheet it has things like a vulnerability i I put picked two and they did not come up at all Mm -hmm. i mean one of them was kind of a Energy limits one. I made my character need to take a break on this on, the sh- on Shabbat because I like that. But like, they really didn't seem to be relevant at all, which is okay. I mean, there's always some st- character sheet that is character stuff that is just, just there for you. Mm-hmm. The text on the sheet is, "What weaknesses or obligation can your enemies exploit?" And there wasn't really time for our enemy to exploit much, but it might have been cool to see that happen.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to put it so there's a bit of of advancement things that can that can happen in this game and and various little perks or respecs, or that kind of thing. There is a a set of rewards that are fourth wall breaking rewards, and so these are things like your character in the comic, you know, sort of the, the comic publisher is putting out a new toy line with your character, or you've got a movie coming up. And so you're able to get these awards, like at the beginning of each session, you pick a random power, and that represents the new accessory that your character has been given out in the, you know, in the, ga- in the toy stores. It's amazing. Uh, I, I I, hadn't seen anything like that before. I thought that was kind of fun. And uh, it would be an interesting thing to keep going with.
0: I love that, that, it makes me even more want to just play a campaign of this. And I love the way they can go in two directions because there's a new movie starring your character so you get some stuff. That works one way if you're playing a fourth wall breaker.
1: That's true. Yeah, yeah.
0: Gwenpool can just be like, hey, you gave me this cape. And it works another way if you're playing a very earnest character who who never addresses the audience.
2: I especially like the toy line one because I'm just thinking of the 90s and how many... like There are characters who literally existed. I'm thinking of Terry McGinnis, Batman Beyond literally existed because they were like, we need another Batman toy. Yeah. Make us a Batman toy and a cartoon to go with it. There
1: you go. All right. So retcon and the prompt here is if you were to play this again, how would you maybe approach it differently? Either just from from the way you have things set up or possibly try a rules tweak or hack. Uh, Shana, can you start us off with this one?
2: Yeah, I mentioned that, um I mean, I this was my first time playing and I read through the rule book, but you know, Reading through the rule, can only get you so much. Um, so I didn't totally get how superpowers worked and how roles worked. So I was kind of thinking, well, transforming, I was reading the description. I was like, okay, that kind of sounds like what I want because my golem can then get, you know, have a cool fighting form. Mm-hmm. What I meant was that in that fighting form, my golem would have super strength, which is a power I took as well. But I never was gonna like. I could have rolled and been like, okay, my golem turns their hand into a axe or something. But that's not really didn't end up being my character's fighting style. Yeah, and wasn't really what I was looking to do. So I probably wouldn't have taken that power. Maybe they're gone for the extra hero point or something else. I also did not like look at my moves that came with my powers. Because I realized like in the last round of the fight that when I use my magnetism on Ferris Metal, I can reroll any advantage dice. I rolled once and keep the second result. And I um definitely failed some advantage rolls on some metal that I played with. I mean, I guess I don't know for sure it was Ferris, but um, yeah. So like I would definitely have kept more track of those power stunts and seen what I could do with that. Those are the main ones. I was pretty happy with my character thing, though I do think it would have been fun to go in with even less idea of what I was doing uh-huh. and like to sort of make a character from what came up.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean, do you have a, a retcon?
3: I'd have sworn less. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It was wonderful.
3: In the material that was not in the podcast, I asked how much swearing was okay. I was told it was okay. And then I said, it's fine. I don't swear very much. And then wound up spending half of the session screaming at the villain, telling him to go fuck himself.
0: So um This is making me want to build a character powered by swearing, but like she swears oaths or obscenities that are obscenities in her culture and like not ours.
3: Space swears. Man. Space swears. Frack. Oh toad.
0: <laughs> Steph, do <laughs> you have a retcon? Yeah, I wish that I had looked for ways to do literal team-up moves and assists to other characters more often and more assiduously.
1: Mm. For me, I think it's it's those advantage and complication dice. I think that playing this again, I would, as a GM, try to call for them more and also be a little bit more willing to sort of break out of the examples of sort of what complications and advantages mean. They're very mechanical, right? That the the boons can get you extra damage or knock out extra minions playing i think bringing a little bit more narrative stuff in there so hey you rolled some complications. so yeah you landed a cool hit now you're trapped in a hole Mm -hmm. that type of stuff i think could be could be more fun and keep keep things a little bit more dynamic in the scenes all right our last prompt is spin off Tabletop role-playing games, they are a conversation. What would you want to see other games borrow, steal, adapt from Spectaculars? What's great about this game that other people can use? Shannon, I'd like to start with you.
3: The collaboration, honestly. I really, I know I keep harping on this, but I really love convincing people to buy into something by making them feel like they partially own it. You know, it's an investment of time. And by investing that time up front, you both uh, reduce to a certain degree the need for extreme lines and veils conversations. So you should always have lines and veils conversations mm. because now you've all agreed that these are the aspects of your setting. These are the things that you can encounter there. But you've decreased a problem I have in several of my games is I will have one understanding of the setting. I think I know what's going on. The GM does not correct my understanding because they're trying to play things close to their chest. They're the GM. And I later find out that either part of my character is impossible or that something I thought about my character is wrong because it doesn't fit with the setting as they had it in their head. Mm. And I just wind up feeling like I don't own any part of this setting. Nothing I do can impact or change it. And and that's not great. If I have one more character turn out to be secretly a princess, I'm going to set fires. That is not <laughs> a fantasy. No, seriously, that is not a fantasy of mine. I get very uncomfortable with a lot of tables if I feel like I'm taking up too much space. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll set egg timers at the table to make sure I don't talk more than everyone else. So forcing me into a situation where I have to take the spotlight when I don't want it, all you've done is make me profoundly uncomfortable at your table. And I feel like this level of collaboration and purchasing our place and things makes that less likely.
1: Shana? A spin-off from you. I
3: really liked the percentage
2: system, which like that, you said, that's from the AC one hundred or something.
1: That's that's what uh, what Scratchpad calls their system. Yeah, they've used it in, in one of their other games.
2: Yeah, I I really liked that, and I liked the challenge dice and boondice, which I've mentioned a few times. I like the way that it kind of it lets success be. You know, you don't know if you're going to succeed. It has the the randomization aspect, but it both makes it a little more likely in terms of like percentages. Um, I mean, depending on what the percentage is that you're rolling. Mm. I did miss critical fails and critical successes though.
0: <laughs> All right, hack that in.
1: <laughs> Steph, a spin off from you.
0: Okay, I want an egg timer. and I, I love that idea. I'm going to go get an egg timer so I don't take up too much space at tables.
3: I am not trying to project my
0: insecurities onto other people here. No, no I share that insecurity. I'm I'm already, you did not give, I already have that. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's can honest.
1: confirm.
3: Okay, just, just <laughs> I, I don't. You are a, I don't have a uh, copyright on that particular freakout, for which I am kind of sorry because if I did, I could just forbid other people to have it. Oh, <laughs> but um,
0: world in which you can copyright your own anxieties and t- thereby take them away from other people, I would be at the Library of Congress so often. It would be okay. so cool. I, I, I feel a, a premise coming on, <laughs> but one of the one of the wonderful things about the system is that uh, other than copywriting my anxieties and getting an egg timer, (laughs) the things I would want to take away and bring to other games are things that a table can actually use because they're the advantage dice and challenge dice and the draw cards and pick a card system for character creation, both of which, if you are playing another system entirely, whether it's D&D or PBTA and masks or something else... If you want, you can just get those dice or get that card deck. And if you have physical access to the things you need to play spectaculars, you can actually just Frankenstein those on to an existing system. Mm-hmm. And they're really good.
2: I like this so much better than the D&D advantage thing of just rolling two dice and taking the better one. That's, yeah. that's boring.
3: And hoping your GM will remember to give you more inspiration after you've done it, because you're an <laughs> asshole if you ask for inspiration. But when you're sitting there just going, well, everybody else got inspiration and I fucked a fucking fish. Where's my inspiration?
0: Uh, 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 what?
3: Uh, that, that was a thing. Uh, but you're supposed to get inspiration for in-character acts.
0: You buried the lead. When did you fuck up?
3: <laughs> uh kelpie is special okay, okay.
1: hey look fish Blade is real all right um <laughs> uh my, my my spinoff is is the way that there is sort of pre-written adventures but that have so many choices and my sort of it's a small history of GMing, you know, started like with so many people with like Lost Minds of Fandelver and like figuring out the you know the, the D D basic adventure, getting people through that, sort of figuring out how to adapt that, and then I'm like, great, this was cool. Let me look at this hardback, you know, like uh, Storm King's Thunder or Tyranny of Dragons, and it's just like so much very specific stuff. It's like, these are the things you're reading through. it, And like, this plot doesn't actually make sense. Like these motivations are really masked. And, and then just like saying, screw it. I guess I'm going to homebrew everything now. The idea with Spectaculars of saying like, okay, here's sort of maybe a tropey little story, a little, a little scene scenario that you can have, but like you can customize pick which of the two villains, you know, do you want the world to end by the Phoenix Forest or Galactus? What what are their things like? Giving you those little choices, mm-hmm. guiding you where you need it, letting you customize it to your taste. I I found that great, and it's in some sense shame to say like, hey, other games should copy this because like, I'm sure it's a tremendous amount of work. Like a lot of stuff went into writing these, but I I think it's a huge payoff, mm-hmm. and I think that it's it's one of the things that makes Spectacular is just incredibly approachable, and uh, you know, again, especially for uh, for people who are who are new and, and sort of learning the the, the tools of the, of the hobby.
2: How does that pun go? Some say the world will end with Phoenix Force.
3: I did appreciate as a GM that when I said, okay, no, the logical thing is we don't leave our damn ship completely unattended on a plague vessel. You went, I have nothing that I can do with you staying on the ship. Can we come up with a reason not to? Like that didn't feel railroady, but that was just a very nice GM going, well, shit, you're going to expect me to do something. <laughs> I got nothing. Okay, how do we fix this? That was well handled.
1: Oh, thank you. thank you. Yeah, sometimes uh, sometimes splitting the party is, you know. And I think that's and, and that's a thing to think about again. Like when you when you are using a sort of a formula, you do have to think about how avoiding railroading, but still saying like, look, the the sort of the conceit of the of the table is like, well, this is our issue, you know. And that's that is a thing that Spectaculars has.
0: I found the poem, by the way. Do you want the poem? <laughs> okay, uh, uh, maybe. Some say the world will end in Phoenix fire. Okay. Some say in Galactus. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor phoenix fire. But if it had to perish thus, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, Galactus is also great and would crush us.
1: (laughs) Stephanie Burt, her new collection, We Are Mermaids, is out now from Grey Wolf Press. (laughs) It does not
0: contain that poem. It it's
2: too bad. It's my new favorite. It contains poems
0: with better scansion. I should hope so. <laughs> okay.
2: I have jammed sometimes and not always loved it because of that, like the sort of give and take of, you know, if I try to invent everything, I'm exhausted. If I go with just the pregens, like I have some really good pre-gens, but at the same time, it's, you know, it limits me. Um and I feel like this is a really good this makes me actually feel like I could
1: GM again. Yay. So that wraps up talking about spectaculars and the mechanisms and, and all of that. And we're going to move on as we do to the back issues. And so this is a time to talk about superhero stories, specific comic runs that evoke the feel of maybe the the setting that we chose or, or just spectaculars in general. Steph, this is your department, so I'm going to just turn things over to you to lead
0: this. So the thing about Back Issues for spectaculars is that it is a system that solicits multiple settings. And it is a system, and this is one of its strengths, that does not tell you what kind of world you're in or how to feel about it. It allows this massive variety. The only thing that Spectacular sort of guarantees you is the stuff that we've Just spent an hour talking about with the fast combat and the combat system and the way the characters are created and the collaborative world building. So I can't name a comic book series that feels like Spectaculars in general. Although if you're playing a game of Spectaculars and you read a comic that reminds you of it, it's probably got a combat focus and has really very good pacing and some good teamwork. I can recommend ways to go into space like we did. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that there are a lot of Guardians of the Galaxy comics of widely varying quality, pacing, and focus. Sean had mentioned once, only once, during play, the Starjammers, who are my favorite space nonsense team. They are space pirates, except when they're space privateers. They include Cyclops' dad and also a talking helicopter, who is a doctor. And a skunk lady who's sometimes drawn as a cat lady by mistake, but she should be a white skunk lady. They're called the Starjammers, and I encourage you to read about them. And you can do that in a 90s miniseries called Star Jammers or an 80s two-issue series that I kind of prefer called Spotlight on Starjammers, drawn by the one, the only Dave Cockrum. I also encourage you, if you want space nonsense with sympathetic characters and lots of teamwork, that is something that is in plentiful supply in prose fiction. And if you want something that moves fast and feels kind of light and superhero adjacent, you might enjoy... long, what is it? A Long Trip to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers.
2: A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet.
0: A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. This is a long novel that reads very fast and feels very space nonsense superhero adjacent.
2: As a bookseller, I appreciate the uniqueness of the title because it means when people come up with something really strange, I know what they mean.
0: (laughs) As a
3: reader, I do not appreciate that every other book in that series has gone to a different spin-off team rather than letting me follow Lady Who Fucks the Space Raptor, which is all I want.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have not read the sequels yet.
3: They don't follow the same the same starship or the same people at all. You'll occasionally see them kind of at a distance, but I didn't feel like we were done with those folks. Oh no. Yeah, that's made it harder for me to read the sequels too. I re- read the
2: second book.
3: I made it through the third, but I've really fallen off. You can have a rotating cast, but I wanted that continuity.
2: I also like, if we're talking about space superhero feeling books, Victory is Greater Than Death by Charlie Jane Anders is fantastic. It is so much fun. And it's just like, it, it's fun and feelings. And actually, without going into anything that happens, I will say there's a very strong team-up aspect and like sort of dealing with being on a team aspect.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have other, other recommendations, Shannon?
2: Oh, yeah. So speaking of the Starjammers, the 2014 Cyclops series, yes, um, yes, is really good by Greg Rucka, and uh, I think the artist is
0: yeah, it's Russell Dodderman, yeah, Dodderman. It's Man. before he was before he was famous.
2: Yes, I mean there's a lot of great X-Men space stuff in general. I also liked the New Mutants run. That I mean, it's all been good, but as far as space stuff, that's like the first arc. And I like that the mutants, the mut- X Men going into space, honestly felt a lot like this, which makes sense because I think we're all X Men fan here, fans here. But like the sort of the sense of you know, okay, we're in space now, even though we're not all characters that necessarily would be in space or interacting. I also, we mentioned sort of the random aspect, and it made me think of Justice League International, um, mm. which is a team that now we really think of going together. That would be the Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Guy Gardner, that team era. And now we kind of think of them going together. But the reason that that team came to be was because the people writing Justice League were not allowed to use Superman or like Wonder Woman or any of the characters we knew except Batman. And so they went, okay, well, we've got all these random sea listers what can we do with them?
1: This is two runs in a row now for Justice League International. So I think I need to uh, <laughs> need to read this book.
2: This, I actually read these first and I don't know how good an idea that was, but they uh, a sort of a not quite reboot called I Can't Believe It's Not Justice League. It was like one of my first comics I obsessed over.
1: Shannon, I know you mentioned that in general, space stuff is is not really your bag when it comes to reading comics. Um, are there are there team books or, or other recommendations that you would associate with Spectaculars?
3: Well, with Spectaculars, basically everything. I feel like because of the random aspect, you're kind of putting together a Doom Patrol. You're kind of putting together the original run on the Wild Cards comics. You know, honestly, even original Alpha Flight, that certain degree of, we're not building a team book, we're taking 15 different writers' pet characters and putting them in a box and then shaking it briskly. <laughs> um, but if you want a space story that I feel leans into, the one, into uh, Spectaculars, the post-crisis Wanderers bo- book that we saw, after the team had been killed and resurrected and were not aware that their original uh, bodies were dead and gone, that they hadn't always been what they were now, I really liked that miniseries. It's one of the space books I've enjoyed most. I don't think you can get it anywhere at this point. I'm pretty sure that sucker is so far out of print that most people are cheerfully forgetting that it existed, but it was 13 issues long. Uh, Dave Monich and the original artist uh, redesigned the characters for their resurrected selves. But it was just a really interesting look at how can you take a character, completely reimagine them without letting them out of the box. You know, so they had to be aware the whole time.
0: Mm. I, I have some some good news for you here. What? If you subscribe to DC Universe Infinite, you can in fact read it looks like you can read all of the 13 issue Doug Mensch, Dave Hoover, Wanderers. It's just online.
3: Neat. Nice. It is a lot of fun.
0: Solid. I'll
1: just drop in a quick recommendation here at the end, and that is the Howard the Duck series (laughs) from uh, Chip Zdarsky and Joe Quinone's Howard and his shapeshifting hipster friend Tara Tam—they team up with Guardians of the Galaxy at one point, and just there's just one of those panels that lives forever in my brain. As the thing shouts out, "All right, Williamsburg is going to handle the machines." I, I'm never without that image, so you know now you can have it too if you uh, if you read that series.
2: I feel like the Captain Marvel issue where she and Ro- Rocket Raccoon team up, and that's where the Chewy as a Florkin thing came from Ooh. also is highly quality.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. no doubt.
2: I think that's currently collected in volume three of the Kelly Sudaconic Captain Marvel things. The numbering got real weird because it was relaunched. Yeah.
1: 20, 2015 was uh, everything yeah. had a new number one. Yeah. So check the show notes for all of these, uh, all of these recommendations that we have all the artists, all the authors. So you can, you find it all, but with that, we are going to close out this episode and this run of Team Up Moves Spectaculars. Shannon and Shana, thank you so much for being here with us, for doing this.
3: Thank you for
2: having us. I had a spectacular time.
1: (laughs) So let's leave with things to plug, places to find you. Shana, where can folks find you online and and what do you have upcoming that you might want to give a shout out about?
2: Yeah, so um, I am mostly these days, I'm playing with TikTok where I am Shana Jean H and I've been playing with Macedon, where I am Shana Jean H at babka.social. And um I don't have anything specific coming, but I have about a thousand Jewish sci-fi fantasy stories that I am writing. So coming someday in the future.
1: Someday in the future. yes. Excellent. Uh, Shannon, where can people find you and, and what's uh, what's going on in your world?
3: If you're looking at the show notes, you can spell my name. If you can spell my name, you can find me because basically every other Shannon McGuire in the world is an Irish sheep farmer and they're all my cousins. They'll forward the mail on to me anyway. Um, I am mostly on uh, Twitter for the moment, though... Gosh knows how much longer that's going to continue. I'm on Tumblr. You can find me on Instagram, but all you're going to see there is pictures of my My Little Ponies and Dice collections and occasionally my pets. I'm on TikTok, but good luck finding me because I don't really do videos, so just spell my name. It is end of January now, so the next thing I have coming out is a book. It's called Backpacking Through Bedlam. It will be out in March, and it is the next encrypted book Which means if you haven't read the first encrypted book, which is called Discount Armageddon, it is not going to make a huge amount of sense, but I still recommend it because I like to eat. But if you wait a little bit longer till July, I have a comic collection coming out. It's called Soul and Stone, and it is from Boom Comics, and it is my Magic the Gathering uh, Planeswalker specific one-shots all bundled up together, Ajani and Nahiri. You do not need to be a fan of the Magic the Gathering ongoing story to understand them. I was very careful to make them intro level, but I think you'll enjoy them more if you are. I'm astonished at how bad Magic has been at getting any penetration for their story outside of TTRPG space. Mm. Like there's this huge amount of lore and story. It's generated like 30 books. There are multiple ongoing comic series, but somehow people don't know
0: about it. So we got to fix that. Yeah,
3: yeah, I'm trying real hard.
0: <laughs> Happy to, to support to give you support for that effort. You know, an ad- additional boon die on that. <laughs> thank you,
1: I appreciate the the additional boon die very much. All right, well, thank you both again for for being here and, and recording
0: this. Stephanie, any last words? No, because I want more. I think the last words are, I want more, more, please, please may I have some more.
1: It's cruel of me to put you on a podcast of one shots, isn't it?
0: No, it's not. It's, it's my favorite thing, but also (laughs) it generates a lot of awkwardness because they have no idea how to end a conversation and never have.
1: That's fair. All right. Take care, pals. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This run, we've been playing Spectaculars, designed by Rodney Thompson and published by Scratchpad Publishing. You can find out more information about it at scratchpadpublishing.com. We're taking that week off between runs. If you miss us, make sure to sign up for our newsletter at teamupmoves.com. We're going to send something out that Tuesday when there might normally be an episode just to stay in touch, just to let you know that we're thinking of you and maybe you could think of us. When we get back, we are going to be playing Chris Longhurst's See Issue X and pals, we've got a perfect guest this was an amazing recording you're gonna love it, it was so much fun to do and I can't wait for you to hear it Team Up Moves a production of Fiona Hopkins and Stephanie Burt, copyright 2023 you can find us on Twitter as at Team Up Moves and Mastodon as Team up Moves at dice.camp. Grab line. We love to chat. Our website, which has that newsletter sign-up as well as all of our past episodes and runs is teamupmoves.com. Our theme music is Play by Sleepyhead. You can find more of their music at sleepyheadrockband.com. Finally, if you get a chance to tell a friend, post on Reddit, chat on Discord, let folks know about the show word of mouth is the best way to help us grow and we totally appreciate it until next time take care pals